Greetings everyone from Bethany Community Church. It is an incredible privilege to be with you, speaking to you at all of our locations today and as well. Many of you I know are watching in other places and around the world. I count it quite a privilege and responsibility to be sharing with you on this particular Sunday. We're at a moment right now in history, unlike any other in our lifetime, but not, not unlike any other. And toward that end, because uh, we desire to hear from God, I'd ask you right now to pray with me and for me before we begin. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that as we gather, not within these walls, as I normally pray, but in many places, places of loneliness, places of fear, places of uncertainty, places of doubt, as we gather alone, as we gather in couples, as we gather in family units and perhaps a bit larger, our desire is to hear from you in order that we might live in this fallen world as people of hope. Speak to us today, we pray. In the name of Christ, who is our hope, amen. We're looking at Psalm 110 today in our ongoing series, Christ and the Psalms. I began uh, studying this earlier in the week and when I was really, my first read of this psalm, when I first read it, I wanted to ditch it entirely. This psalm seemed to me, in first run, xenophobic, nationalistic, judgmental, annoying. And so I looked for another psalm to preach and kept being convinced that this was the one to go to. So I continued to study it a little bit more, a little bit more deeply. And as I did, uh, I came to a turning point in my own life, this psalm led me to a place of profound repentance, a revitalization of my prayer life, so that I can now actually say to you, Psalm 110, plus a movie that I watched on a plane on the way back from Europe, uh, has changed me profoundly. And I'm happy to share that change with you. And we do that this morning by looking at three questions, important questions, that this psalm answers. This is a psalm about God defeating enemies, and so God is defeating enemies through the people of God, and, and the priests play a role in that. Here's the three questions I'm answering today. Question number one, who are the enemies that God is defeating? Question number two, what is a priest's role in this work of God, moving all of humanity in a positive direction? And number three, what is our role in this movement of God? Who are the enemies? What is a priest's role in the movement of God? What is our role in the movement of God? Those are three things we look at. We begin by asking a question, who are the enemies that God is defeating? We read the text, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I want to make sure that we clear the deck here by naming two false enemies to which this text has sometimes been applied. And so I want to tell you, number one, other nations are not the enemies in this text. This is a misreading of the Bible. Sometimes in the history of the church, we've used the Old Testament to justify racism, xenophobia, colonialism, border closures. There was a time when we thought we were the new Israel and that we were therefore entitled to land. This shows up in a doctrine in church history called the doctrine of discovery, kind of the notion that if you go into a place and the people there aren't believers in Christ, you can take their land. This doctrine was created by the church and it's heresy. 
And it, and it comes from a misreading of the Old Testament and an application of that one unique time in history when God gave land to the nation of Israel. That unique moment in history has now been applied over and over again uh, by other nations throughout history to create colonialism and slavery and wars, the likes of which have been incredibly destructive to humanity. We need to name it here. Other nations are not the enemy. And this is important in this particular moment right now. It's timely because of the xenophobia surrounding the virus that is global. Hear me. This is not a national issue. This is a global issue. And no nation is our enemy in this. When the world implodes like this, as it is imploding right now, there are lots of rumors about a virus, conspiracy theories about a virus. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of blame. As if to say, if only the president or the health department or some other entity had gotten it right, we wouldn't be in this mess. I'm here to say to you, stop. No people group, no race, no nation, no party are the enemies in this text. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 is very poignant because it's New Testament application to this Old Testament psalm. Post-Christ, we go back and retrospectively read the psalms through the lens of Christ, lens of Christ, and this is what we read. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, he says, though we walk in the flesh, like we live in human bodies, we don't war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. So we do not war according to the flesh. Our enemies are not nations and political parties and people groups and races. So none of those are the enemy. Second, very important as well, (coughs) suffering and trials are not the enemy. To the contrary, the Bible has a huge theme running through it. The Psalms in particular, but from the beginning to the end, the Bible looks like this. You ready? It goes like this. It goes, order, disorder, reorder. Order, disorder, reorder. The reorder is always better than the original order, but between order and reorder, there is always disorder, right? And, and, and so we see this all through the Bible, the necessity of disorder to bring about a better order. And that necessity is called trials for many of us. For example, in the Old Testament, Judah is transformed from a jealous, hateful, self-righteous brother to a servant willing to lay down his life for a family member. And the way that he is transformed is through suffering and trials. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 5 is very poignant here, so I want to read it for us as we see the role of of trials in our lives, God says to the nation of Israel before they go in uh, to the land to establish themselves as a nation, it says, remember that God led you in the wilderness these 40 years by humbling you and testing you. So as you go into a wilderness period in your life, which I would define as a period you've never been before, it's precisely in these wilderness places, like an oncology ward, or a funeral of an infant, or the unemployment line, or the land of coronavirus, it's precisely in these wilderness places that we come to learn the character of God in new ways. He led you into the wilderness that he might test you and humble you and shape you so that you might now know not in your head but in your heart, not intellectually but experientially, the character of God. That's why we have trials. 
And so we're in new places when we're in places of wilderness, places of trial. And when we're in new places, our senses are attuned differently and we pick up revelation from God that we wouldn't have in normal times. We suddenly see in these times. Suddenly, we, we're finding right now a, a reassessment of all of our values. Perhaps we are discovering our addiction to financial security when we no longer have it. Or our addiction to th technology. Or how easily we've distracted ourselves from the things that really matter in our lives through superficial social times or social media. And now we're stuck alone with our thoughts, our fears, uncertainty about, about the future. Everything seems out of control. I'm here to tell you that's okay. In fact, not only okay, in the New Testament, this con continual theme of trials is addressed by James in James chapter 1, verse 2, where James says this, consider it what? Pure joy when you encounter trials. Why? Because no trial will ever take from you God's intended destiny, which is a higher order. You're at order, then you're at disorder. God wants to bring you to a higher order. You can't get there without going down into disorder. Disorder is trial. Disorder is wilderness. Disorder is virus. So this is where we live. And when we're in this time of trial, the illusion of control is stripped away because suddenly we don't know our financial future. We don't know our health future. We don't know our employment future. We don't know our culture's future. We don't know the future of the economy. We don't know what the church looks like in the days ahead. We thought life would be any number of things but of all the possibilities we considered, none of them included this path. Stuck at home, watching my savings evaporate, wondering about my job, unable to turn to anyone face-to-face -face, uh, for comfort. I can't even go grab a pizza. And yet hear this, I'm saying it again, trials are not the enemy. God allows trials, God uses trials, and even sometimes God brings trials. We don't know if God brings them, allows them, or uses them, but the point is, whether God is the direct agency or it's simply the result of living in a fallen world, God transforms us through trials. God can use trials to reprioritize our choices so that we move from our previous order to a higher order. So I'm just going to ask you, can you come to the point of giving thanks, not for the trial, but giving thanks for what God wants to teach you through this trial? I'm home, but I haven't been home yet. That's a trial. I can't go home. I'm in self-quarantine. That's a trial. The goal, though, should never be to avoid trials. And if a trial is foisted upon us, the goal must never be to simply get back to where we are. Because every trial, according to James 1, every trial is intended to move us into the state of disorder in order that the new state of being, the reorder, will be higher than the previous state. So we don't want to get back to yesterday. We want to move higher. We, uh, where we are, well, excuse me, where we were in order previously isn't where God wants us to be. God's moving us onward and upward. And if we want to move into greater measures of wisdom and peace and maturity, then we don't want to go back to yesterday when we were richer, healthier, busier maybe, but also maybe more prideful, more judgmental, more materialistic more individualistic, more nationalistic, more consumeristic. God's shaking us to move us. That's okay. I was reading two books uh, while I was over in Europe. One is called The Way Home about a guy who lived without power for a year. And he muses on both the hard work 
and the advantages of working his land by hand. He goes to bed when it's dark. He gets up with the sun. He has time to know his neighbors, time for conversation. He literally wrote this book with a pencil on paper. Unbelievable. It was a very good book. And uh, part of the time that I was in Europe, I, uh, as I was reading this book, I actually decided I'm going to try this. I'm going to go to bed with the sun because the week I was reading it, I wasn't speaking in the evenings. So I, I found myself going to bed at 8 o'clock and then getting up at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning and sleeping these long, glorious nights during this week that I was devoted to, to writing. And I was learning, you know, the way we live life, what we call normal, it doesn't have to be normal. The other book I was reading about uh, was uh, called The Winds of War, The Windmills of War, and it's, it was about the Dutch resistance during World War II and the ravenous hunger that uh, people in Holland knew because uh, of the way that the Germans took all their food and how that hunger produced in many people generosity and courage and in other people greed and fear. And every day I'd read a little bit of this book and then I'd check the news, markets, unemployment, businesses closing, borders closing, accusations, rumors, fears. And then I'd be reminded that we as a species have been here many times. And that lots and lots of people come out on the far side of disorder, wiser, kinder, more compassionate, more generous, change forever for the better. So hear me when I say this, trials are not the enemy. Now, what are the enemies then in Psalm 110? The Lord says, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I'm going to name a couple of them. Number one, fear is an enemy. There's a fear that comes into our being because we're fallen creatures. There's a, there's a, there's a fear where we rush to worst-case speculation. Proverbs 26.13 is kind of this humorous example of this where this guy refused to get out of bed because he says, there's a lion in the town square. Now, the reason that it's humor is because it's a town square. And there is not a lion in the town square. But somehow in his mind, he's created a scenario that is discordant with any possible reality. And he's living his life now based on this worst case scenario. And it's causing him in fear to withdraw from everything. So there are fears based on worst case speculations. There are fears based on the unknown, even good unknown, when the angels show up in Luke chapter 2. It says that the, the, the shepherds were sure, uh, terrified because they'd just never seen anything like it before. And then the very first words from God through the mouthpiece of the angels, don't be afraid, he says to the shepherds. Look, you don't have to be afraid of what you don't know. You don't have to be afraid of worst case scenarios. You don't have to be afraid of tomorrow because you don't know what tomorrow will bring. But the most profound fear of all, the fear that is kind of the, the mother of all fears is the fear of death. And this is addressed directly in Hebrews 2, which um, tells us that fear of death makes us subject to slavery. Now, I think that this verse is actually one of the most profound verses in the Bible because it says this. It says, look, if we fear death, if we fear death, then we become slaves because our approach to life becomes all about simply hanging on to what we have, our stuff, our reputation, our happiness, our health. And listen, 
if this is our paradigm in this moment, we won't lay our stuff down or our time or our reputation, let alone our lives. We won't lay anything down in service to others because we'll get into this mode of survivalism. And we all know that the rush on toilet paper and the rush on canned goods is indicative of a world afraid that they won't have enough to preserve themselves. I'm telling you, that's the enemy, that fear. And when we all think that way, it's anarchy. So I want to read Hebrews 2, verses 14 to 15, because this fear is addressed directly in those verses. And we, it's a word for today. It says here, uh, Christ partook of humanity, flesh and blood, so that <coughs> through death he might render powerless the one who had the power over death. That's the devil. And might free those, here's the, here's the key, he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. Free you who through fear of death have been subject to slavery. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of things here. First of all, because of Christ, we now believe in a resurrection. Because there's a resurrection, we can be free of physical death, but not only physical death. It's true that we also believe in life out from the dead here and now. We do. When Jesus said in John 10, 10, I come, I've come that you might have life, what he's saying there isn't I've come that you might live forever. He's saying I've come to bring eternal life, which you will enjoy forever, down into your present moment now so that you in this time, 2020, in the midst of a virus ravishing the world, creating fear and hoarding and accusations, it, right in the middle of it, you can live without fear. Why? Because you're living out from resurrection life. And that means you're free from the fear of losing reputation, losing health, losing stuff. This is the way that Jesus wants us to live, but we can't have this life out from the dead unless we die. So in moments like this, our plans die. Our safe and sanitized lives die. Our individualism dies. Our greed dies. Our, our uh, commitment to a certain financial future may, may die. Our commitment to a certain employment may die. And what rises on the other side? Fearless servants, loving neighbors, loving friends, loving foes, living generously, calling people together, equipping one another, encouraging one another. That is available on the far side of letting go. And actually, that life, that reordered life, better life, exponentially better than, than prosperity cocooned in individualism and, and selfishness and materialism and overactivity. We have a better future on the far side of this crisis if we walk with Jesus. So fear is an enemy. Here's another enemy, anxiety. I'm not talking about clinical medical stuff here. I'm talking about the anxiety that arises exactly at times like these because we feel as if we've lost control of our lives. And in reality, you didn't lose control of your life. In reality, what's happening right now is you are learning the truth that you never had control of your life. Control is an illusion. Uh, when our president uh, banned non-U.S. citizens from coming to the U.S. from Europe, my flight to get home was canceled. 
Uh, and so then I went online and tried to fly, uh, find a flight the next day and the next day, all flights canceled from Frankfurt to Seattle. So uh, then I rebooked through London because Great Britain was still okay. And then on the day that I needed to leave Austria to go to Zurich to fly to London, uh, I went to the train st station to buy a ticket, a, a train ticket to uh, Zurich from Austria, and I learned that the Swiss border was close to Austrian trains because of the virus. So I can fly out of Zurich, but I can't get to Zurich. Then a friend generously said she'd drive me uh, through Germany to Switzerland. Another friend said that he drove some people from Germany to Switzerland, crossing the border at this unmound mountain pass at 3 o'clock in the morning. Anyway, I had no way to get there until I had this offer from a friend. And so I went, I made it, I made it uh, to uh, Zurich. And then another declaration. Flights from Great Britain will stop, accepting non-Americans. Uh, and, and so as I'm boarding on Monday, I hear this is the last flight to Seattle. No more. So here's the point. I had a plan. This is all of your lives right now in other ways. The business you own. It's not gone maybe, but different plan. Your family dynamics, different plan. Uh, your, the health of someone you love, different plan. Uh, your financial security, different plan. James 4, 13 to 16 says this. Come now, you who say, hey, tomorrow we're going to go here and there and we're going to get some stuff done and we're going to buy, we're going to sell and our investments are going to go up. Don't worry, it's 8% a year. Really? No, not always. The point of James 4 is to say, you who say anything about the future should always couch it in this. If the Lord wills, this is a plan. But plans are held with open hands. Why? Because we have no control. We never did. So in, in, in light of all of that, how should we then live to face these particular enemies of fear and anxiety? Number one, prepare for suffering. Here's why. Hebrews 12 says this. Periodically, God shakes things up a little bit. It says in Hebrews 12, 26, once more I'll shake not only the earth but the heavens. And this phrase denotes the removing of things which can be shaken so that things which cannot be shaken may remain. What does that mean? That means that uh, there are things that can be shaken. Health security, financial security, um, employment security, business ownership, geographical uh, uh, addictions, I guess, or commitment to living in certain places. Everything's on the table. We thought it was secure. It's nothing secure. Oh, wait, nothing? No, no. The things which can be shaken, I will shake so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. What cannot be shaken? Christ, the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. The, the same during the Black Plague. The same during the 30-year, the most bloody war in the history of the world. The 30-year war in Europe. The same during World War II. The same during the rise of the Nazi regime. The same after the victory. The, the, the same with... SARS, the same with Ebola, the same with AIDS, 
The same in 1987 when the market crashed. The same in 1929 when the market crashed. Christ hasn't changed. That matters. So listen, how do you prepare for suffering? You draw into the one thing that you know will never be taken from you. Man, here's this, here's, I think it's Psalm 46. Even the mountains fall to sea, bam, doesn't matter. I'm yoked with Christ. You can take the mountains away. You can take the economy away. You can shift up the national maps, the borders. Christ remains. My wife uh, was out snowshoeing this week. There's a giant hemlock tree on the snowshoe route where she leads guests during the wintertime. She always likes to stop and hug that tree, and she posted a picture of that on Facebook. I haven't been able to physically be with her yet. She's hugging that tree. Just, just remind me, that tree represents, in a way that we maybe understand, represents the security and stability of God. I mean, that tree's been there during Columbus. That tree's been there during slavery. That tree's been there during um, uh, all the world wars, during all, many of the viruses. I mean, that tree's 800 years old. Man, wow. <laughs> God's not shaken. God's not surprised. So what, look, what can be, sh- what, what can be shaken in your life? Net worth, shaken. Health, shaken. Schedule, shaken. Business relationships, shaken. However, watch this. Intimacy with Jesus, unshakable. Identity in Christ, unshakable. Calling to be the presence of Christ, unshakable. So let's cling to what can never be taken from us and expect victory over the fear that leads to small living, careful Greedy, joyless living, because those are the enemies Christ is conquering. Uh, ne- next thing I want to see, there's a second question, very important question in this psalm. This victory over enemies is tied to a priesthood. There's a priest who aids in the victory over the enemies. So I'm going to ask the question, what is a priest's role? And I'll just explain this to you. A priest has a calling to identify with both God on the one hand and humanity on the other. The priest has a clear confidence in, their, in his relationship with God and a deep love of humanity as well and stands between the two, representing uh, humanity to God and res- representing God to humanity. And the word we use for this is mediator, right? So all through the Old Testament, there are priests representing uh, humanity to God through offerings and sacrifices and representing God to humanity through teaching. And then we come to the New Testament and we read in Hebrews <coughs> that we have a priest. Jesus is our priest, our high priest. And Jesus more than identifies with God. Jesus and God are one, right? Hebrews 5 explains Jesus is our high priest. Psalm 110, 4, the same. He, Jesus and God are one. I and the Father are one, he says. And as such, Jesus shows us what God looks like. But... Jesus, as our priest, is human too. Our priest shows us how to live with our common temptations toward fear and anxiety and selfishness. These temptations that are inflamed in disruptive times like these. Know this, our priest is walking with us through these fires because it says in Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way just like us. 
Are we tempted to fear, to uh, um, small living, to selfishness, to fear, to anxiety? Great, so is Jesus. So he's walking with us through our valley of disorder on our way to reorder. He's walking with us in this valley right now in order that we might, through his strength, overcome temptation. In fact, the text even goes further. In Hebrews 5, 8, it says this. Although Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because, did you hear that? Jesus needed to learn obedience. He was perfect, but until Jesus became a man, his will and the will of God the Father were always what? Boom, exactly the same, always. Now, in his humanity, he's here with us, eating food, walking uh, the, the desert, enjoying the sunrises, living life, enjoying companionship with others. And then he, he approaches what he knows to be his impending death in the garden of Gethsemane. And he says this, he says, God, I know what you want. Your plan is for me to die. If it's possible, take this cup from me. Do you hear this? Jesus is saying, my will is not your will. And then he takes it a step further and says, nevertheless, what has to carry the day is not my will, Jesus, but you, God the Father, I will submit my will to yours. Jesus learned obedience. How? Suffering. <laughs> Are you suffering? You have a companion. The one who experienced suffering walks with us. When we're alone, and I'm alone, the one who was alone walks with us in our loneliness. When we're afraid, and maybe you're afraid, the one who said, if it's possible, let this cup pass, is with us in our fears. And not only that, Hebrews 7.25 says this, Jesus is able to save us completely, spirit and soul and body, because he never stops praying for us before God the Father as a priest representing us to God continually. <laughs> your priest is your companion, your confidence, and when you draw near to your priest, you live differently. I'm waiting in line uh, to check my bags in Zurich, getting out of Europe. And it's an interesting time because all U.S. flights have been reduced to 15 different cities in America where they can enter. So a bunch of flights are canceled. People are trying to rebook. Big, long line. I'm here. There's a woman in front of me, and there's a guy. He's the next guy up. I'm kind of singing this song, kind of this mantra that I sing sometimes. Come, Holy Spirit, heal me. Come, Holy Spirit, free me. I'm just singing it, right? Quietly, in, internally, basically. It's not a trick or magic, but I'm aware of the presence of Christ. A ticket agent dismisses a guest, has an opening. The guy at the very front of the line isn't moving. The gal right in front of me taps him on the shoulder and says, uh, the agent's waiting for you. He snaps. He starts yelling at her, and he goes, yeah, I bet you voted for Trump too, didn't you? You're trying to steal my place in line? No way. I'm getting out of this country. And then he goes over and he talks to the ticket agent. Such fear, such rage. And it made me think, man, I wonder how much fear and anger is right under the surface right now because we don't know what's coming. 
Listen, I'm just here to say to you, you don't have to live that way. Not only do you not have to live that way, but God can use this moment in the sense that to the extent that we live entirely other than that way, the light of Christ will shine with greater clarity than ever. <laughs> I, I want to be a person of hope right now. And so I need Jesus to be my priest. And then here's the last thing. We ask a pretty significant question. What's our role then in all this? And this is where, boom, kind of our heads explode because you read Psalm 110. Enemies destroyed. That's the enemies of fear and anxiety. By the power of the priest, that's Jesus. What's our role? Well, come to 1 Peter chapter 2 and we're told, oh, listen, not only do we have a priest, Jesus, but now because Colossians 1, Jesus lives in you. You don't really have a priest. You are a priest. You are a priest. <laughs> representing humanity to God and representing God to humanity. That's your calling. How do you do that? Well, a couple things. First, James 4, 8. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. We're called to become obsessed with Jesus. What Paul calls in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, uh, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We're, we're invited to live lives where we're continually receiving resources of Christ. We need the, the time-honored rhythms of worship in our lives now more than ever, really, because space is opening up in our lives to draw near to God. I'm in Austria, and I get this message. Uh, I, come, I go into a staff meeting at the, at the school there. It's the last day of the conference at which I'm speaking. And my friend Martin, the director of the school, he says, uh, the skier is closing on Sunday. And so the next four weeks of ski camps are kaput. And all the volunteer staff, we need you to leave by, by uh, Sunday. Shut down. Talk to a friend today, uh, leader of a large camp. He just let go 287 part-time employees because all camps are canceled between now and summertime. Conferences, canceled. Trains, canceled. Jobs, canceled. I'm calling this the season of the global monastery. We're all withdrawing as millions find themselves in need of new rhythms. The room is empty as I speak except for the videographer who's 150 feet away, Wes up there in the balcony, because uh, I've learned that people I were teaching, I was, uh, the people I was teaching last week in Europe have, have contracted the virus, so I'm self-isolating to wait and see what happens. Now more than ever, I have time to meditate on my identity in Christ, to read my Bible, to worship. This can be an amazing time if we use it wisely. We will have resources available around this kind of global monastery theme very soon for you. I hope you'll use those resources. Second, though, we don't need to draw near to God. It, this is a time when we get to advocate for people. And there's one big way you advocate for people. You know what it is? You pray for people. Pray for healthcare workers. Pray for those who are healthy but terrified. Pray for any one of the thousand people that you know who have these, these reasons uh, to be worried, those who are sick, those who are, who are financial hardship, those who are making decisions, pray for your neighbors. Priests pray for people. And it's hard to find good examples of this in our American culture anymore. But one 
priest has been celebrated quite a bit recently. His name is Mr. Rogers. I uh, in and out watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood on the plane on the way home. And then when I was preparing this sermon last couple of days, as I came to this notion of the priest praying, I thought, how can I help people understand the value of this? And I went back and I watched again the end of this Mr. Rogers movie. Because there's this guy, his name is Lloyd, and uh, he's assigned to interview Mr. Rogers. But Lloyd has deep anger issues with his dad, and he will not let himself heal. At one point, Mr. Rogers says, I'm praying for you. Many of us say it all the time. I know I do. But I don't know if I do. As I watched uh, the scene in the movie where Mr. Rogers is praying for Lloyd, and Lloyd is making a decision to return and reconcile his dad, I was overcome with conviction from the Holy Spirit. Richard, this is a ministry that you've neglected. We're called to pray for one another. Let me explain what this looks like by watching together. I have to go and see Jerry. He's dying. I know. My dad is dying. Cecilia Sherman. Colby Dickerson. Justin Cook. If you wait for me. When I watched that uh, film clip the second time, not on the plane, but uh, more intently, I just started to weep. I had this um, six-minute timer praying for people. And I'd say over the last six months, that time just swept away. And I did other things, read my Bible and such, but 
I'd stop praying consistently for people. It's back. And I want to tell you, we as a community, want to, we want to pray for you. And we want you to take up the mantle and praying for one another as well. Our pastors, our staff, our community count it a privilege to pray. And as the senior leader, I assure you, I want to exhort and equip our team to pray. And if you text uh, to the number 64600, the word praying, uh, you'll receive a card that you can then fill out. It'll get back to us. And we want to distribute those cards to all of our uh, uh, pastoral and ministry staff so that we collectively will do what Mr. Rogers was just doing. Every day, we commit to praying for you. You'll be prayed for every day by name for the next week. I can't imagine any of you don't have prayer requests at this moment. So what do you want to see God do? Please share it with us so that we can pray. And then pray with me that God would use this time to shape us. There was order. There's disorder. We're in disorder. But as we draw near to God, enjoying the priesthood of Christ and become the priest that God has called us to be, the reorder that we'll enter into on the other side of the previous order will be so much better than where we were. This is opportunity. Let's become people of hope. Father, meet us. Give us the courage to be vulnerable and pray. Give us, give us the courage to name our fears, to name our anxieties, and to ask for prayer. Use this time, Father, to shape us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.